welcome to Colored Red, a podcast that's all about Colorado true crime. I have a really quick historical murder for you guys today, and I know these types of episodes have been getting longer and longer, but this one will be really quick. But first, I'd like to mention an update from last month's episode about the McCormick Murder Farm. I was contacted by a person who lived near the McCormick Murder Farm, and I won't say how close, but it was within 10 miles of the farm, and they provided a little bit of insight into what it was like to live near the farm. Basically, they said that the McCormicks didn't really integrate into the local towns whatsoever, that they lived out there in their own little world, and that... To this day, there's still a little bit of fear of retribution from McCormick's that are still alive. So I guess the brother's still alive, and um, various distant members of the family are still around, and there's been this everlasting fear of this family, and only just now are people kind of starting to come out a little bit more and talk about the farm. Everybody found out that there were murders that happened and that the the two men in the family were missing and that all this illegal activity was going on. No one was surprised. And they had basically been known to steal farm vehicles and cattle and damage property and do all kinds of things to the farms that surrounded theirs. And they just kept in their own little world. And so just a little tidbit about what it was like to live near them. I had no idea that they actually went and stole other people's property near them. That's very strange to me. I'd like to remind everybody that if you have a correction or something to say, or you've known somebody who was a victim in one of the crimes that I'm talking about, or you just had some kind of connection to anything that I talk about, feel free to message me. And if you like, I will share your information on my next podcast episode. And you can actually email me at coloredredpodcast at gmail.com with a recorded sound clip of what you have to say, and I will put that onto the show if you would like it to be on the show. So with all that said, that brings me to today's case. Today I'll be using the Colorado Historical Newspapers Archive as well as a research site called Historical Crime Detective. This case takes us all the way back to the turn of the 20th century, 1904. Mining was the heart and soul of the economy in Colorado at that time. And some people in the mining industry were rich and at the top, and even more people were paid a pretty good salary to work administratively and managerially, and they worked for these mining companies in that capacity. And and even more people were paid a pittance to put their lives at risk every single day and actually dig inside of these mines. One man was named Azel D. Galbraith, and he was more of the administrative type. He worked as the business manager of a mine in Russell Gulch in Gilpin County. He was a small, bookish-looking guy who made a really decent money for the time and was slowly working his way up the ladders of the Colorado mining industry. Azel wasn't an unknown pencil pusher either. His name was really held in high regard in the business, and his name had even appeared in newspapers on occasion when covering a business deal or other mining news that was going on. He also would frequently travel down to Denver on business, leaving his wife Jenny and young son Donald behind in the mining town that they lived in. But life for Azel wasn't really that satisfactory. He wanted more. He wanted so much more out of it, and he wanted it fast. He wanted excitement. So on one of his trips down to Denver in the year 1902, 
he began an affair with a woman named Lottie Russell. In addition to this new turn of events, he also started drinking very heavily, maybe to ease his mind, maybe just to party or some combination of the two. He wanted more than anything to just please his mistress. So he wound up blowing through his entire life savings just to keep her happy. He bought her new dresses and fine jewelry and nights out at Denver's finest restaurants and tickets to the best shows in Denver at the time. And he purchased expensive trips for either just her or both of them together to visit her friends and family back east. But eventually his savings did run out and Azel, desperate to keep his mistress subdued and pleased, began embezzling money from the mine that he managed in Russell Gulch. So in March of 1904, Azel was fired by the owner of the mine. And it actually doesn't indicate at all that this firing was because of the embezzling money from the mine he managed. There's actually no reason really given for this firing at first, but I can assume that Azel's obsession with this mistress in Denver was pretty much the center of his attention at this point, and his ability to manage the business of the mine had pretty much gone out the window. But before Azel was removed from the building, he managed to steal a book of blank company checks, which apparently went unnoticed. So now he was in a real bind. He's stuck in this mining town with his wife and young son, and now no job and no money to get down to his beloved mistress and continue showering her with gifts. So what's a man to do? His wife, Jenny, had no idea that he was fired, and he didn't tell her. For several days, he continued to pretend to go to work, but he was really just slipping down to the local saloon in Russell Gulch and drinking and hatching his plan. On the morning of March 9th, he and his wife woke up and remained in bed together, and his wife began discussing their future and their plans for their son, and she excitedly discussed plans for the rest of the month. He and his wife had actually known each other since childhood, and they were considered an incredibly devoted couple and best friends. But around 9 a.m., Azel somehow distracted his wife in the bedroom that they were still in, and he pulled out a 32 caliber pistol from somewhere in the room and shot her through the head. He then placed his wife's dead body in the bed and covered her as if she were sleeping. He then went outside and called for his eight-year-old son, Donald, who was playing nearby with some friends of his. So Donald came running up and followed his dad up to his parents' bedroom. In there, he couldn't see that his mother was dead, and he thought that she was still asleep. So Azel told him to hop up on the bed and lay in between him and his mother so that they could all have a chat. While laying there, Azel pointed out the window and said to Donald, Hey, look, look at that little bird out there. And when his son turned to look, Azel shot him in the head too. He arranged Donald's body next to his wife on the bed, he folded their arms across their chest, and he crossed their legs at their ankles, and he pulled the quilt over them, picked the bullets out of the bedding, and put them in his pocket, washed his hands, packed a bag, and by his own account, drank every last drop of whiskey that they had in the house, and then just left them there in a home that he would never return to, and he went down to Idaho Springs, where he drank himself into a stupor for three days, with the bullets that had killed his wife and son jingling in his pocket. Then he came down to Denver and stayed at the Brown Palace Hotel. 
He spent a month in Denver partying with his mistress and gambling, who by all accounts did not know that he was ever married, and she had no idea about the murders, of course. He cashed numerous company checks during this time because back then, finding out that money was being stolen or improperly used wasn't instantaneous like it is now. He spent roughly $1,000 in a month, which in today's money is about $24,000. But eventually, the mine did discover that money was being drained at a rapid rate, and they quickly pieced together what was going on. So on April 8th, he was apprehended by two Denver detectives who had an arrest warrant from his former employer. And the next day, authorities entered his home in Russell Gulch and discovered the decomposing bodies of his wife and son still in the bed where he left them a month before. When they interrogated Azel, he first denied everything, and then he eventually said that he was so embarrassed about being fired And so he said he wanted to spare his family this life of poverty and that he was going to kill himself too, but lost the nerve. Later, he cracked a little bit further and told them the real reason that he did it. He wanted to be with his mistress, Lottie. And he told police that he had been planning the murders of his wife and son for over a month. And it was, he had been planning their murders even before he was fired. He said that since the murders, he had not drawn a single sober breath. And they also arrested his mistress, but due to her shock and confusion, they believed her telling them that she knew nothing about his family, the murderers, or had any idea that the money that he was using was stolen. Azel was then taken to a jailhouse in Central City, where officers had to calm this ever-growing lynch mob who wanted to kill him. And this was a really common occurrence back then. Damage control for lynch mobs was commonplace at jails holding criminals, particularly murderers who killed in the local community and whose story was all over the newspapers, and particularly for those murderers who killed women and children. I'm going to say almost all the murder cases that I've read about before eh, 1910-ish involve a lynch mob trying to get to the criminal. So even though Azel had pled guilty, he was given a jury trial, which found him guilty after about 40 minutes of deliberation. Um, The jury recommended the death penalty, of course. So on July 7th, 1904, a judge sentenced Azel Gabreth to death on a set date of October 16th in Canyon City. But just two days before the execution date, he was granted a 30-day reprieve and then three more reprieves over the next four months or so because the state was actually reconsidering their capital punishment laws since Azel was actually the first man to be executed in Colorado in eight years. So finally, after being reviewed by the state Supreme Court, his execution was set for March 6, 1905 at 8 p.m. He dressed himself in a new suit, and before the hanging platform was offered a drink of whiskey, and he said, no more of that for me, that's what put me where I am. So, standing there with his ankles, knees, and wrists bound, a minister said a prayer to which Azel simply said a quiet goodbye, and the bag was placed over his head, and he sort of jumped forward onto the weight-sensitive platform of the Colorado State Pen self-hanging machine. This machine was one of a kind, and it was a machine designed with a weighted water pulley system that jerked the person upward by their necks incredibly fast, and the machine was all put in motion by the criminal themselves, jumping or stepping onto this plate that was in the floor. 
There was no lever pulled by a prison employee, and this lessened the psychological burden of execution for the employees. Azel was placed in a wood box and buried on Woodpecker Hill in Greenwood Cemetery, which is where all unclaimed bodies of those who died in Canyon State Pen are buried. And I visited this uh, the Canyon State Pen this summer, and I'll repost some of those pictures for you guys. I have most of them all up on Instagram, but there is a picture of a person using the self-hanging machine. And I'm going to post some pictures of Woodpecker Hill um, in the Greenwood Cemetery with their tin plate grave markers for the prisoners. Most of which just say inmate number whatever. They're just nameless, completely forgotten people. So, that's it for this story. And Azel and his wife and poor son left to lie in bed for a month up in Russell Gulch. I'm going to have a picture of Azel up on my Instagram at Colored Red Podcast, as well as his son when his son was a baby and his wife Jenny with her brother. I hope everyone has a wonderful holiday and I'll be back at the end of the month with this month's episode. Until then.